And they call it Sunday with Macca. G'day Macca, this is Prue speaking. Hi Prue. I was just ringing to further the debate about wattles and wattle blossom days and yep. all those sorts of wattly things. Yep. One of the magical things that I've done is to take a magnifying glass and actually look at a wattle blossom. Wow. Because they're actually compound blossom. So when you look at the buds, you see all these little tiny pinheads. So that makes up the entire puffball, if you like. But the other thing about wattle blossom is that it produces pollen, but no nectar. The nectar is actually produced at the base of the leaves. So if you look wow. at an acacia pignantha, the golden wattle, you'll go to the leaf and you'll follow it back to where it joins the stem. And I'm sure someone will ring through and say, well, wattles only have phyllodes, they don't have leaves, but that's a technical thing. Um, but you'll find a little gland and the insects will come and drink nectar from that. But also the eastern spinebill has a fine enough tongue to be able to drink from the nectar as well. Now, all oh. wattles have that. That's how they make themselves useful to the rest of the environment. But the the most important thing about acacia pignantha is that it comes back after fire. They seem to also be important at restoring the mycorrhiza, which is your fungal layer that moves in under the soil. Isn't so, yeah, very, very important. The thing about Wattle Blossom Day is why on earth don't we have a Grevillea Day or a Hakea Day or, or a Eucalyptus Day? That Australians all know if you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Scott was our first caller this morning, just after six, and he was calling from what we all describe as a phone box, but there's no boxes anymore. But the phone box has a secret and romantic and spiritual connection with this program because we often used to get, because we've been here for 30 years or so, and um, we'd often get phone calls from people who are out at Windora. I don't know if there's still a phone box in Windora. Sometimes there'd be a queue of people <laughs> waiting to talk to us because it would take so long in terms of waiting to get on. But Scott rang us from a phone box in Adelaide. He was out going for a walk. And I mentioned that because I saw that. And as soon as I, because we were talking about phone box. And remember, we did a whole program in Ubobo, didn't we, Kel? About um, they were about to lose their phone box. And that was, a, in fact, a phone box where you could go inside. And I pl so I played the little song of one of our albums called, well, we call it Nocturne in a, uh, in a phone box about the bloke in the trombone, in the phone box playing a trombone, which was very hard to do, but he was ringing his girlfriend, I think, in St Kilda or somewhere. Um, no, he might have been in Adelaide. Um, but anyway, so the phone box has always had a spiritual connection with this program. So Scotty rang us, and we're going to send, if we can find Scotty, because he was in a phone box. He gave us the phone box number. But, yeah, it was too quick. We'll probably get it later. But um, if we can find Scotty, we'll send him some sort of a little prize because, as I said... I love the phone box calls and it was announced by Telstra or whoever owns phone boxes, NBN, I'm not sure who owns them now, but it doesn't matter. The phone, and they were called, they, they changed to pay phones, didn't they, about 15 years ago and I thought that was a retrograde step, but now they're free apparently. You can go and use a phone box for, for free, take your little sanitary wipes and just wipe down the thing and away you go. Um, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. The other thing is that um, our uh, technical producer here, John, is growing a mullet 
um, because he can't get a. There's a few backyard dealers, isn't there, Kel? Cutting hair, if you're lucky enough to find one. Um, but uh, watch yourself. But hair's hair's going down. Um, Colin rang from Caloundra, and he's he told us about the finish of the mullet season. I think the Chaplin family up there around Caloundra has been in. The mullet, catching mullet, you know, when the bloodwoods are in bloom, the mullet make their run and uh, the mullet season's just finished and Colin sometimes goes down and watches them and he said um, he, uh, because, I don't know if he'd been locked down, but he, he went to the barbers and he demanded a mullet. So he's he had his hair shaved, but um, he's got the mullet. And I suspect um, that's a a nod to the famous fish because they use just about every part of the mullet, according to Cole. Fish heads and things like that go into cat food and dog food and, um, and of course, there's the roe, which is exported overseas and I think he said the scales are used for um, for fertiliser. It's all very interesting. Lots of, uh, lots of lovely calls, especially about trees and wattle. And that was Prue, you heard, Prue Geddes from Adelaide, lovely lady and and lovely story about Wattle. I can't understand why Wattle Day is not just part of the fabric because it's the national emblem and there's a wattle out in most parts of Australia at any time um, of the year and it's all about everything. But Kathleen uh, Whelan has said, uh, Ian, wattle seeds make safe return from space. This is the headline. Golden wattle seeds have returned to Earth from the International Space Station. Australia's golden wattle has made a giant leap for science and extraterrestrial gardening. Really? Seeds of the National Floral Emblem have returned to Earth after a six-month visit to the International Space Station for experiments. This is one small step for golden wattle, but a... One, please, one giant leap for biosecurity, science and innovation. Agriculture Minister David Littleproud said on Wednesday, working with Japan's space agency, Australian scientists sent the seeds into space last year on a space rocket, SpaceX rocket. I don't know what that is. Biosecurity officers will now inspect the well-travelled golden wattle seeds to ensure they meet biosecurity requirements and have not picked up any exotic pests and diseases. Australian school children will plant the golden wattle after the precious cargo is checked as part of the Seeds in Space education program. Some of the space seeds will also be planted in the Australian Embassy Garden in Tokyo, and we had that lovely story about wattles after the atomic explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I think last year we were talking about it. Australia's science agency CSIRO, CSIRO collected the seeds from a wild population in Victoria as part of a national research collection that safeguards millions of specimens. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, and Eve, uh, is it um, this one? I've been planting uh, Kevin, oh, Kevin Butler from Blazade. Uh, I've been planting the local acacia Manzii or black wattle at 40 to 100 metre spacing since 2001 and it's one of the best farming innovations I've done nitrogen and potash fixing up to 10 degrees cooler on extreme temperature days, fire stoppers as they slow wildfires, bird stepping stones so foxes can't get them I have more advantages of planting black wattle but suffice to say I'm a big fan of planting again once lockdown in Victoria has passed says Kevin Butler from Kilmore East. Good on you, Kevin. That's a, as I said, it's a great idea. I don't know about Arbor Day. There's, I've got a letter here about Arbor Day. Um, uh, but um, I don't know where that's gone. Do you know where the Arbor Day letter's gone? No, but 
you should plant a tree. It's so it's win-win. Not only good for you and good for the environment in terms of heating and cooling down. It's lovely under a tree. Oxygen. Trees pour out oxygen. Capture carbon. It's just the best. And it's good for your little animals, little spine bills, eastern and western spine bills, all of those. Now, this is this is very interesting. We've just had the Olympics and everybody marvel at the Olympics. My correspondent is Robin Mariska and she says... A thought, another thought about the Olympics, the creed, the motto, another runner in the 1956 Olympics. You might recall we spoke at Betty Cuthbert's memorial. I certainly do. Robin's, Robin said to me that when she was younger, she was running in the Western Suburbs uh, Athletics Club. I think it was the Western Suburbs. And Betty Cuthbert was there and they were good mates and they ran against one another. And after a while, she, she went up to a coach and she said, why can't I run as far? fast as Betty Cuthbert. I've got long legs and I do this and I do that, but why, why can't I run as fast as Betty Cuthbert? And the other, st- the other story was a lady rang at the time when Betty passed away and, and she said, we, we went, I went to the same school as Betty and this is primary school and, and we were kids and the teacher would take us out um, and you can imagine a, a, um, a school, a primary school in, in those days gone by wouldn't be Anyway, you might have a, a cow in the paddock next door, but the teacher said, okay, uh, line up here. I want you to run down to that fence down you see down there and run back. Uh, on your marks, get set, boom, off they go. And the lady said, and they'd be running down the fence and Betty Cuthbert would pass them on the way, <laughs> she was on the, on the way back. That's how quick she was. But anyway, Robin Mariska continues. Uh, as we spoke at the uh, at Betty, Betty Cuthbert's memorial, she said, thinking about Peter Boll and his champion run in the 800 metres Olympic race, his mar- did I give you the number? 1300 700 222, wherever you are, give us a call, even from a phone box. Thinking of Peter Boll, says Robin, and the champion run, his most heartwarming words were that he didn't know whether he was going to win, but he knew one thing for certain, that the whole of Australia was watching and that carried him on. Here's a man who wasn't born in Australia, but you can see the absolute love he has of our country and the gratefulness at being given a go. You can see that his goal might have been to win, but more importantly, he was there at the Olympics giving it a go to take part. Peter Boll has reminded us of the Olympic creed. And the Olympic creed is this, Robin says, the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part, just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. I'd always thought this this was the driving influence behind the Olympic competition until I heard the motto "faster, higher, stronger" from the Latius, the from the Lat, Latin "citius" or is it "citius"? I didn't do Latin. I wish I had "citius altius fortius," faster, higher, stronger, and that was adopted in 1894. The um, the motto. I can't connect the two mottos. The creed is about the journey. The creed is it's not winning the most important, but the, um, but the struggle. I can't connect the two mottos, says Robin. The creed is about the journey with the prize being the achievement of being part of that special group of people who have achieved the ultimate in their fields. The newly adopted motto doesn't seem as glorious as achievement as the creed, an achievement as the creed. It's a more personal aim. Um, Peter Bolt's remi- uh, run reminded me of another great effort. In '56, there was a lot of animosity between Russia because of their recent brutal invasions into Hungary and there was blood in the water when Russians and Hungarians played their water polo, ma- polo match. And then here was the Russian athlete who excelled in the long distance 
run. We didn't want to admire him but we, because we abhorred his country's politics. But when Vladimir Kutz from Russia ran into the stadium in his 5,000 and 10,000 metre wins, the stadium went crazier. We looked as one and cheered him at his record-breaking win and victory lap. It was a wonderful moment which reflected the creed of the Olympic Games and how the Games can bring countries together when they admire the excellence of its competitors. Sadly, I don't feel that now with the latest games. With the constant reckoning of the number of medals each country has, it doesn't seem so friendly, says Robin. And I've got a little lovely little story here now, um, which I'll play for you in a minute. It's called The Wombat Flash, but I'll talk to you, 1300 700 222. G'day, this is Macca. Good morning, um, Macca. It's Carmel here from Alice Springs. G'day, Carmel. Yep, I rang you last year. Um, we live on the east coast. That um, I told you, we came out and um, stayed on a cattle station northeast of Alice Springs uh, with our son, daughter-in-law, and grandson. Um, and we've just left the station after being there for about eight, or no, I think about eleven weeks, um, welcoming our second grandchild, a little girl. But just to let you know how much twelve months and how different things are and how it can change. Mm-hmm. Last year, um, it was very dry. This year, they've had rain. Um, the budgies are in their thousands on the station. Um, wow. Red-tailed black cockatoos. There was a, a flock I counted of 50 the other day flew over the homestead. Uh, um, they've uh. increased the number of stock. Um, it, last year, we were in isolation in the caravan park for two weeks. Um, this year, we came through with no problems. And... Um, tourism here is the caravan parks full every night, which is great for the for the operators. And uh, funny though, we had a three day lockdown here in Alice Springs. Um, we're on the station and we're not allowed to leave. And you would have thought the world had ended. It was amazing. <laughs> three days they couldn't handle it. So, um, but yeah, it's it's so different. Um, we had twenty mils of rain on the station while we're out there and and couldn't move for three days because all the tracks had turned to mud. And But it's it's amazing what a bit of moisture can do. And, um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to going back to the East Coast and COVID. Um, we've experienced a, a lot of freedom even in Alice Springs oh, here. It's, uh, tell me about it. Go on. Um, well, you can, there's no masks. Um, you still have QR codes where you check in in different places. And... They encourage you to, to distance, but there's that many people in town. It's a little bit hard to do. Um, they had um, a seniors festival thing in town here yesterday. Um, it, it's just amazing, but the people are really um, embracing being able to travel in the end. Too, oh, so. you don't know, Carmel, you don't know. Now tell me, do you have, do you have to go back to the east or can you stay there? Um. We, my husband and I are retired, so we don't have to come back, but um, we've been away since April, so we usually come back. Um, we spend a few months um, of the year with them, and then um, eventually we will. We think we'll be back about mid-September. Mm. Um, we live in Brisbane, so we don't have to... I think things aren't, aren't as bad as they are in other parts of Australia, but, yeah... Well, you never. Uh, it, the problem is, you never yeah. know, Carmel. You, you know, in in September, things could change. I mean, um, unless yeah. we crack down on this virus, um, it's it's going to spread around the place with a lot of ramifications, which we're going to talk about in the quarter to eight news. But anyway, keep going. One of the great sights in Australia 
is that fly, those flocks of budgies and uh, or black cockatoos. Oh. I mean, that's just one of the things, yeah. as Dick Smith might say about travelling to places, you're not a real Australian unless you've seen um, a flock of, a cloud of budgies because they're like a big cloud. It's like a huge cloud. And then you think, what's that? There's a cloud there. And then it turns out it's yeah. um, thousands and thousands of budgies. Yeah, well, we used to get up um, twice a day. The dogs, the working dogs are kept in kennels um, down at the stable. So we... Um, my daughter and I would go down and, and let them out and you exercise them. So we'd go for maybe, um, I think one day we managed to do 12 kilometres. You walk around because there's yeah. nothing out there. But, um, one of the dams down there every morning, um, if you go down at a special time, because there's all trees around the dam and they'd all rise up and it was huge. It was like, oh, my goodness, you know, um, and thousands of them, and then they do a circuit, and then they'd all land in the trees, and it was like chatter, chatter, chatter. And you could hear them from, oh, at least a kilometre away, this chattering. And, you know, it was amazing. Um, and then later in the morning, they'd all sort of rise up in a big flock, and then they'd break off in flocks of maybe 100 or 200 and fly in different directions. But the next morning, they'd all be back around the, the dam for their drink. So, um, yeah, and... Um, I would try to get photos, but it's it's really hard. Oh, no. um, the morning I would take cameras down, yeah. um, I would miss them. And then the days I didn't take a camera, they would be there. So but I just enjoyed the spectacle. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can take a photo, but you, you like being at the uh, the last concert of um, you know, um, a famous uh, performer. You had to be there, Carmel. You had to be there. Listen, yeah. um I wish I could be in Alice Springs and hopefully we'll be able to travel in Australia once more, but I don't know how that's going to happen. We're going to talk about that, as I said, in the quarter to eight news. Carmel, um, good good luck and, uh, yeah, thanks for your call and uh, letting us know how things are in other parts of Australia. Thank you. Bye now. Bye now. Uh, G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. It's uh, Scott McBain from Adelaide, mate. I'm calling from a phone box. Oh, you're not. Are you really? Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm out for a walk, mate. Um, so, I mean, it's bloody early here because I'm, obviously I'm half an hour behind you. So I, I listen to you on the on the stream straight out of Sydney because uh-huh. I'm one of these stupid people that walks every morning at stupid o'clock. I, I get out <laughs> at about 10 to 5 and um, go for a walk every this, morning of the week pretty and, much. And this is not just because of lockdown. You're not locked down there, are you? No, no, we're, we're, we've been out for a couple of weeks. Mate. We've still got to wear the masks and things like that, but it's it's not too bad. Um, but I, I just walk because there's no one around and um, do it for my mental health more than anything else. It's, uh, uh, and you you listened to us and you passed a phone box and you said, well, hang it. I'll well, I, I was coming up. It's funny. I, I, was, I, I, I walked past uh, uh, Kensington Oval where, where the Don played a lot of his early cricket. And I'm, I'm in between Kensington Oval and, and Penfolds where they make the Grange. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in a reasonably historic part of Adelaide, I suppose. And I'm on the parade, and I'm at uh, at, at 485 the parade, and at the, the payphone identification number is 0883329X2. Now, I don't know how you dial the X on your phone. Oh, I suppose I've got those letters on the numbers, don't they? But yeah, well, you um, could, you could stay on you could stay on for hours because it's all free. I, now. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just going to leave it here after I go. Um, <laughs> And, and just leave it on hold. No, um, no, don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to really. But, no, do it. It's uh, just, and it, they, wo- they work. Yeah, well, obviously they work. 
Um, we should give you a prize of some sort, Scotty. Um, well, I'll put my, you... maybe some, I was thinking after the after the event, maybe some sanitizer back because I was just thinking they haven't thought this through too well. In the middle of a pandemic, they decide to make payphones free. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, well, I, I think most people realise that no, anyway, wouldn't I'm they? They'd wash their hands or I'm, whatever. Yeah, I'm vac- I mean, I'm vaccinated and I'm prepared to take the risk. Yeah, I've got yeah. it. I've got it 1.5 metres away from my mouth, so I'm assuming that that's. Uh, well, I think that's, that's all right, Scotty. Um, and the reason I concentrate on phone boxes because we used to get a lot of calls this this is back in you know 20 30 years ago there were phone boxes everywhere and people called them and then they called them pay phones they didn't call them public phones they used to be called public phone boxes and then they changed their name to pay phones like a la america they always had the pay phone ring on a pay phone and now we've got um phone boxes are a part of the scenery apparently according to telecom or nbn or whoever who cares but um and they're also free so it's win-win well, scotty i mean mate i'm from i'm from the you know i'm from that era that i grew up with with, with phone boxes and, and you know phones on the wall and, and yep. phones with the rotary dials and actually party phones on the, on the farm back in the day <laughs> And they'll, um, and they'll probably work and the the beauty of the phone box is that the battery doesn't go flat no, that is true. But they don't have phone books anymore, Macca. They, uh, they, they, went, they went by the way a yeah, long time ago. And you can't ring, ring the operator and you can't reverse the charges. I don't know whether you can. I reckon no, we don't need to reverse the charges no, of now. Course. Yeah, exactly. they don't cost you anything. But I think once upon a time you could. I, I reckon you always could reverse the charges from a phone box. Yeah. But. Um, anyway, look, it's it's good to see they're still here because overseas. I mean, I was in London working uh, three years ago, I suppose, and mm. you know, proper old, you know, proper phone boxes like we used to have. Yeah, but you could shut the door on. That's still a thing over there. Well, um, and, they're, and they're fabulous. A bloke rang me. Uh, oh, I don't know, last year, a couple of years ago, uh, in yeah. South Australia, and he set one up in his own. He's on his own joint. He's got a phone box, and it works. Um, oh, they're beautiful. I mean, yeah. they they're a great bit of outdoor furniture if you if you can get a hold they're of. They're a work of art, Scotty. I reckon. Well, they are, mate, and they, I reckon they added to the environment. They, mm. These, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm not a big fan of these new aluminium ones, and you know they've had to design them to be vandal proof because of the world we live in, and 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 not most of them aren't even. You know, some of them are just like stands with a. They don't even cover. You know, they they're only a sort of partial cover. This one's actually a. It's got a bit of like jail mesh on the bottom of it, and uh, it's got a light at least that works. Um, but it's it's three sided. But exactly, uh, it's, right. it's pointing towards some shops, so it's sheltered. So all right, Scotty, I can imagine you're in. A, well, you're not in a phone box. You're at a, you're at a public phone. Um, I'm in a no public box. phone, Macker. I'm in my shorts. It's eight degrees here in Adelaide. It's pretty chilly. I've warmed down now, waiting. So I'll have to I'll have to. Get up! I'm heading up the hill. I'll probably, I'll probably do about 18 k's this morning. All right, mate. Good on you. Nice to talk to you, Scott. Have, Thanks have for a ringing. Good day. See you, mate. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye. This is the all over news, and long time listeners to the program would know that we get calls from all over, all over the world. Time was when China was a different place with a different ruler of the Chinese Communist Party that we'd get frequent calls from Aussies living and working in China, often teaching English. 
no surprise that those calls have dropped to a trickle in the last five or six years. So it was interesting to listen to Troy when he called us last week. He's been living in China for over 10 years. You may be surprised, as I was, of some of his revelations of life behind the bamboo curtain. G'day, Ian. Uh, this is Troy, mate. I'm calling from the city of Kuming in Yunnan Province, China. I do teaching here. called you almost six years ago to this day. I would have called you August 2015. I think I was in Zhengzhou at that time. Just thought I'd uh, give a call and uh, tell you a bit about what's life like in China, I suppose, compared to what I hear in Australia. Though. Kuming is just one of the most southern provinces of China. It's almost on the Tropic of Cancer. But it's about 6,000 feet up. It's quite high and uh, like we're in the middle of summer now and it's quite pleasant, actually. It's quite a nice place to live weather-wise. So I, I like it, actually, yeah. <laughs> I've been in China since 2010, but um, I was going to come back in tw- whenever just before the lockdown happened and that kind of put a halt to that. So I'm just going to wait till all the things sorted out and it's an open country and then I'll probably roll back then, I'd say. So what's kept you in China for 10 years, is it? Come over here to learn the language, mate. I still haven't learnt that yet. Bit of a tough language. They got many different languages. They got simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese. They got a written language, a spoken language, all the different dialects. You go to a different province and they got their own language. Ah, so much to it, mate. A lot of work. What do you teach? English, physics, and math at the moment. That's what I teach, but and- in English, yeah. These are all students that want to go to university overseas are the ones I teach, not national Chinese students, yeah. So they can all speak English anyway. So we help them get a place at uh, university overseas, mate. That's what we do. Big business in China. Troy, tell me this. You said you'd tell us about life in China. We hear lots about life in China and we make our own decisions, I suppose, about what it's like. Tell us about your life in China. Well, they had their lockdown, but you could go out and buy stuff. They didn't let you go out to do exercise, but you had to buy food. That was all right. You had to get your stamp. You had to get your medical health check and all that. I mean, I know places in Xiao when I was there because people got the coronavirus, they booted everyone out of the building and I don't know what they did with those people, but yeah, I had my vaccine, I got the Sinopharm vaccine, I wasn't going to get the Sinovac one, but um, they offered that to all the teachers for the school we're at, so that was pretty good, I suppose. Otherwise, it's quite normal, actually. So uh, if you ever come to China, mate, you've got to get a VPN, make sure you get a good one. Troy, you obviously enjoy living in China. Oh, I'm not happy with some things. <laughs> I won't talk about it on the air, but yeah, there's things I'm not happy about here but it's just not part of what I do. So I don't know I just teach and have a good um, environment with the students I teach and help them get out of China, I suppose. There's quite a few Australians in Kuming, actually. I know about 20 other Aussies out here, so I'm not the only one here. I know other teachers that were going to go back to Australia, but even with this new law they brought in down law, I don't know if it's in law yet, how you, if you come back from overseas, you've got to give a good reason to leave the country. That sounds a bit tough to get around on. Is coffee the flavour of the month, uh, year over there? I mean, is there coffee shops everywhere? So obviously, they wouldn't drink as much as the Western world, but if you need it, you can get it. There's no problem about that. Yeah. All good. I suppose you've had your coffee for the morning too, haven't you? Yeah, I always get my coffee early in the morning. Just just tell me this. We seem to perceive that the Chinese and especially the Communist Party don't like us at all. So have you felt any of that over there, being an Australian in China? I haven't directly experienced this. No. Even where I work at the school, there's people in the Communist Party. We get along great. I mean, we don't. Obviously, there's things we can't teach in school, like we can't say Taiwan's part of China. They, they ban that and all these other. Actually, there's quite a lot of Terrible things that happen in school, like all Western books have just been taken out of libraries. Like you walked in the library and half the books are gone because they're Western now. And they're really cracking down education in China. I'm not really happy with what's happening. Anyway, I'll just see how it pans out. Hopefully coronavirus will be all done. I can come home with no quarantine. Well, good on you, Troy. All right, mate. You have a good one.
It's quite amazing, isn't it, when you talk to people who are on the ground in a place like China and he says all the Western books have been taken out of the libraries where he is. I'm not sure if that's happening all over the place, but you would think so when you read the press and see what's happening in in, uh, in China. But um, I always find that when you talk to people on the ground, you get, you get a, a much better perspective, I suppose. Um, a cursory glance through the morning papers at any time will bring you headlines such as the jab alone won't bring you freedom. Uh, Delta has ruined herd immunity. Vaccinations should be mandatory. Learning to live with COVID. Well, what does that mean, living with COVID? I'm not sure many understand. I think I do. And I don't like the prospect. Bill Botell is adjunct, adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales, strategic health policy consultant. He's on the line. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Maka. Nice to talk to you. Why do we have to live with COVID, I have to ask? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, You might remember that from October 2020, when we got through the Melbourne outbreak, Australia basically had no local cases of COVID from October 2020 until the great uh, problem at uh, Sydney Airport in the middle of June. And under that, we had very good freedoms. You could travel around Australia go to New Zealand, as I did. Uh, you could uh, go to sporting events, you could go out to restaurants and theatres and all the things that we like to do. They were real freedoms. Now, when the cases uh, emerged in Sydney in mid-June, the New South Wales government, quite inexplicably in my view, decided that uh, we wouldn't have those uh, freedoms of uh, COVID zero, but we'd all have to learn to live with COVID. Well, eight months, eight weeks later, here we are. We have had uh, 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 6,500 cases, 36 deaths, ICU uh, cases, and really New South Wales is facing probably the the grimmest and most dire situation that it's been in in its uh, modern history. So I don't uh, think that's living with COVID, and I think that the promise of uh, uh, coping with COVID delta into next year uh, we won't be getting those freedoms back uh, that we had uh, earlier this year. We'll be uh, staggering along with more restrictions, with the serious uh, problems with the virus, even if we bring this present uh, outbreak under some sort of control uh, as we get uh, more vaccinated. I just, uh, I've just spoken a little while ago to Vivian, and you, you get to realise about the different Australias that are existing at the moment. Vivian's... Um, no, Carmel, sorry. It was Carmel, Carmel in, Al- yeah. in Alice Springs and she was out there and she was telling me about flocks of budgies of thousands and and I was just sitting here. My eyes were glazing over and I, was, I, I, I remember that. I remember when you can travel and now and, – and I've also thought that, you know, when you look around Australia, I thought, well, Daniel Andrews, he's a worry and the bloke in Western Australia, he's a worry and and now I'm looking at it and I think, well, no, they're not a worry. Um, it's what's happening here that's a worry but – I'm not sure there's it's there's two there's two pushes isn't there Bill there's a there's a push from people who want to get open everything up again and will learn to live with covid um but that will mean as uh, I, there's a piece in one of the papers I read from 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 England and they said um where where will I read it here professor uh, professor Pollard um who says that um we we herd immunity is a thing of the past 
and that if you're vaccinated, um, you'll still get this COVID, um, this Delta variant, and there will be other variants and you'll have to keep getting jabs and there will be times when you still have to have lockdowns and there will be times when you still have to wear masks. And that's the new normal. But as you said, back in June, before June, we didn't have to – things were hunky-dory really, weren't they? Well, well, they were, and that was because the Australian people, I think, wised up to this pretty quickly. They said the best way to live with COVID was to live without it. And uh, we've seen many of the state premiers and territory leaders uh, decide to give effect to the wish of the people for that. Now, where would you rather be uh, opening up your cafe this morning, in Perth or in Sydney? Or uh, where can the kids go to school, in Perth or in Sydney? Uh, There are different ways of doing it. And the Australian people, I think, pretty much support uh, local elimination of COVID. They certainly support rapid vaccination. And then when we've got those two things going, let's uh, prudently and carefully figure out how we can uh, move across the borders internationally without uh, bringing COVID with us. I don't see why we should rush to embrace to become like a COVID endemic country when we've done so well uh, for so long uh, to go in a different direction. It seems to me you can't make rational decisions about anything, especially as something as important as this, while you've still got cases raging around. It seems to me that if you can get it down to zero in Australia, and you've got an opportunity in Australia, whereas in, you know, in Europe and places like that, you don't have that opportunity, sure. um, that maybe then you can make um, rational decisions about what you should do and which way you should go. But of course, this thing keeps changing all the time, Bill, doesn't it? Well, of course, uh, a year ago, uh, we didn't know anything about Delta. Uh, We had the old COVID, which uh, I don't mean to say it was like the good old days, but it wasn't (laughs) as infectious and terrible as this thing is. And uh, now this has been around for six, uh, eight months. Uh, It's much more infectious and it was always coming uh, to get us. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't take the steps necessary uh, with the quarantine arrangements uh, and so on that would have protected uh, us from Delta coming in. Uh, and now, you know, we've waited eight, week, eight weeks, eight long weeks in Sydney before we've got around to taking what I think should have been done eight weeks ago. And that would have uh, meant uh, a much lower caseload of uh, infections and uh, ICUs and uh, regrettably deaths in the last uh, eight weeks, not to mention the economic disruption. So, look, we've just got to be ahead of this thing. Uh, we cannot fall behind it. Uh, we've, it's going to change. Uh, who knows what might come along next year? But uh, even in the United States, with a very high degree of um, uh, vaccination, mm. much higher than here, from mid-June to now, the daily caseload has gone up from 11,000 cases a day, roughly, to 111,000. It now, can change that quickly. Yes, and and I suppose COVID's in endemic now in uh, uh, overseas, isn't it? Um, whereas... Um, Mm. Uh, it shouldn't be endemic here if there's any possibility of preventing that. No, I don't think we want that. I don't think we want the chaos and terrible situations that have uh, we've seen in Europe and uh, North America. Uh, if we can keep it out and keep it under control and then very prudently and rationally upgrade our quarantine arrangements, we know that the big Howard Springs facility outside Darwin works really well for people coming in to stop Delta transmitting because it's uh, cabins in the open air. So we've got to move Mm. away from the hotel quarantine system, which we know is not good against Delta. We've got to do all of these things. No one thing will 
protect us. I accept that. And we're never going to eradicate Delta in the world, but we've just got to do all the things we possibly can to control it and to protect our people and uh, make sure that it doesn't spread, particularly as we've seen in the last uh, few days. And I think this is what propelled New South Wales, the oh. situation in Dubbo in the far west, yeah. where, very, where very few people are vaccinated. Quickly, Bill, um, I'm talking to Bill Bartell, who's the um, uh, adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales. Quickly, there's a great push for people who want to travel. They want to go to Aspen, they want to go to Greece, they want to go wherever. Um, what's that going to mean if that's uh, opened up too quickly? Well, if it's opened up too quickly, we run a great risk of uh, those people bringing back uh, uh, Delta or some strain of COVID. So I think we're going to have vaccine passports. We're going to have to look very closely at the quarantine arrangements as people go across borders. And I think there are some states and territories in Australia that will be very reluctant to allow uh, easy access if that means shipping in cases of Delta. Uh, and I think that's a wise and prudent thing to do. I wish we weren't in this situation, but here we are. And I think we've got such a great achievement that we just don't want to put our people at unnecessary risk. We've just got to we've got to think this through. We've got to know that there are upsides, which are travel, of course, but there are downsides in terms of higher case numbers, higher deaths, and of course the economic disruption that we've seen in Sydney. People are really struggling if they're running businesses that can't open. And it's so why why do we want that? And it didn't really have to happen, as you said. Bill Bartell, thank you for talking to us and uh, yeah, good luck. Thanks so much, Maka. Simon's in North Star. Good morning, Simon. Morning, Michael. How are you today? Yeah, not bad. Simon uh, is in North Star, as I said. North Star's out near Moree. Is that right, Simon? Yeah, off east of the Newell, Matter between North uh, between Moree and Gundawindi. Yeah, that's right. And you've got a, a good a feel good story about North Star, the little town of how little is the town of North Star, Simon? The little village of North Star. Yeah, we we haven't had a lot of services here for the last few years. So um, a good mate, now James Hardcastle of. Uh, we, we got a bit sick of it because we live out here and everyone else does. So we, we've put a little cafe together, mate, to get the, get the community together and, um, you know, get, get everyone, you know, what? coming together and uh, a, a good meeting place. You, did, you, I, you didn't have a coffee shop in North Star. What sort of a joint we are you did, running there, Simon? No, well, that's, that's why I couldn't believe it, Matthew. I, I thought, I can't live here for the rest of my life and no. not be able to get a, a decent coffee like all these Sydney and other people yeah. can. And, uh, yeah. No no turmeric lattes, beetroot lattes. Oh. Well, anyway, tell me the good news. You've got a coffee, a, a cafe. Where did you put it? So we, we put it in the main street. We were fortunate the, uh, to purchase a house there, of the, the old vicarage house. So we called it the vicarage cafe. And it used to be where the vicar, the Church of England vicar, lived, and uh, yeah. they were fortunate enough to buy that off the off the church, which is in the main street. It's got a beautiful backyard, and and uh, we've planted a heap of trees there, and uh, oh. it's uh, it's got already established lawn, and we've uh, yeah, it's got heaps of character. It's really good. So you can go to church and then pop in for a coffee, or and then pop in for a it's coffee and then walk, go to, then go, a, to, go to church. Yep, it's only a walk from the church. <laughs> So uh, no, it's good. So James Hardcastle and I put that together, and he's a he's another farmer in the area, and he uh, he and I uh, we've had a fair bit of fun putting it together, and uh, we'll continue to. I think yeah. 
Well, and uh, seriously, I think um, you know that's you've got to do things for a little town. Otherwise, I suppose you were looking at North Star just dying, and you can't meet the locals. I suppose because nobody goes into town. Well, there's so many beautiful people in America, like, and there's all those beautiful families coming through. You know, they just need somewhere where they just need somewhere to go, really. And it's not in the big, you know, in the bigger cities. You know, closer to home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Simon, what do you do out there? Uh, we're dry-land farmers with a bit of irrigation. We go wheat, barley and chickpeas in the in the winter and um, sorghum and cotton in the in the summer and we've got some cattle as well, yeah. Yep. Barring floods and snow and sleet and ice, you're facing another good year this year, Simon? Crops look good, Matthew, yeah. Crops look good at the moment. They are growing along nicely. We've had some nice winter rain and and uh, nervous times now. We've just got to get it off now. So yep. it's, it's we'll be harvesting mid-October, so yeah. I don't know, but two good seasons in a row is unheard of, isn't it? <laughs> well, we are on the edge of a good season last year, Matter. Like, south of us was good. Last year was okay for us, but we are ready for a good one this year, hopefully, yeah. Well, listen, when I, when I can move, uh, when we can all move, we'll be uh, at the vicarage. I'll go to church and then I'll um, go and have a coffee. And, Simon, I'll ring you so you can meet me. Are you, are you, uh, are you the barista, Simon, or...? You've got a barista? Uh, well, James is a much better barista than me. Um, he, he often puts the apron on and gets right into it, and he cooks. He's, he's amazing at that, so I've picked a very good business partner to go in with because he's definitely got the, uh, the gift of the gab when it comes to that, yeah. Well, and it's very important. You know, I mean, it's all very well to grow wheat and chickpeas and stuff, but if you can't pour you know, barista on the coffee, um, the whole thing's down the drain, Simon, as you, as you now realise. It is, Matthew, but, you know, people say you can't get staff, but then, you know, we've we've just asked around, and there's plenty of talent out here in the bush. Like, gosh, the, the girls we've got working in the cafe are fantastic. And, you know, you know, it's so good being able to employ local people in our business, and, you know, it just keeps a, a little economy going. It's working really well. And isn't that, and it's, and it's lovely, and it, it's something like... You know, I, I just marvel wherever I go. The, the suburb I live in has got about 16 or 17 coffee shops. They're not open at the moment, but you can buy one and stand in the street and and go away. But something like a coffee shop has really brought Australians together in some sort of strange way in the last 20 years. Um, it's yeah. just, me think, amazing. Yeah, it is. We see people, you know, because you've got to cross paths with people and if you're not playing kids' sport or doing that with them, you don't see them. So it's great to be able to just run into them at the cafe and... Yeah, it's been really nice, actually. We've got a lot of pleasure out of it, and I think a lot of other people have, yeah. Simon, I hope you have a great harvest, and I'll see you at the vicarage. Nice to talk to you, mate. Thanks, Michael. We're going to try and get our silos painted in town, too, so we're just throwing together a few ideas of whether we can get some paint companies to come on board or whether we can get some artists to throw some ideas about so we can just lift this town and get it back on the map and um, give people a good coffee shop to go to and some good silo. You're on the way, Simon. to look at. Yeah, you're on the way, mate. Good on you, mate. See ya. Hello, Macca. This is Jeanette from Glen Ennis. G'day, Jeanette. You've got two minutes. Oh, right. Well, I don't do much in two minutes, but I'll do my best. Yeah, go. Um, uh, we, a group of my colleagues at Glen Ennis Primary School have all joined together in a team to step up to breast cancer. So we commit to 10,000 steps a day and try to raise money for research into breast cancer. Um, so I just want to have a big shout out to that team of um, amazing community-minded people that we're all stepping up to that. 
But yesterday, I have a, I have a farm as well, and uh, I walk, I'm a wool classer. I've been a wool classer for many, many years. And uh, I was in the shearing shed. Uh, we were doing one day just to try and get some out because of the wet weather. And um, I actually clocked up 32, over 32,000, 32,600 steps in one day. Oh, wow. And that was with that was with two shearers um, who weren't um, overly fast. My son was one, and he's he's um, still learning. Uh, but I just I just wanted to say wowee because 32,000 steps, two shearers. That's we did 215 odd fleeces for the day. In some shearing sheds, some rouseabouts and wool handlers, um, you know, handle 600 to 800 fleeces a day. So just imagine the steps that they do is all I wanted to say. That's pretty amazing. Jeanette, that's a lovely story. Um, and how's the wool business? Uh, pretty good. I think it's uh, – I actually haven't had a look at the prices, Macker. I don't like to do that because I'm a jinxist. <laughs> um, it's, been, it's been better and I've got a, um, you know, a, few, a couple of friends that I still do the wool classing mm. for because I work at school. Um, so I'm hoping it stays up for them. They got good prices at the beginning of the year. Good on you. So hopefully it will stay up. Thanks, Jeanette. Lovely to talk to you. See you in Glen in sometime. Oh, it'd be lovely. Come to our Bye. school. That would be lovely. we Will do. Bye-bye. A bloke uh, called Ray Clark has written a book called Reflections on Vietnam uh, recently. Uh, and he talks to... Um, Various veterans about their time and their experience in Vietnam. Uh, a, forgot, a bit like Korea in lots of ways, the Forgotten War. Ray Clark's on the line. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Macca. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm, I'm very well, considering uh, <laughs> everything. Tell me about your reflections on Vietnam. What's your relationship to Vietnam? Are you an author or a veteran or what? Oh, si- simply an author, Macca. Simply an author. I, I recall it was about... Uh probably a decade ago, there were a couple of books published um, on the unknown or unbefore-published memoirs of some First World War soldiers. And I thought at the time, gee, it's, it's a shame that they're still not around for us to, to talk to, um, especially now as it's a bit more acceptable to, to talk about their experiences. Um, and, of course, PTSD is a, a much well, well, a more well-understood and known phenomenon uh, and it just occurred to me that if somebody didn't sit down and talk to some of our Vietnam veterans sooner rather than later, their knowledge and their experiences would be lost forever. And that seemed to be a waste. Um, and so I decided that um, I'd find as many veterans who were willing to speak with me as, as I could and, and sit down and get their stories from them. And that's how the book came about. Because it was a very traumatic time, I suppose, no time when you returned from war. I, I think of First World War veterans who sort of would ju- just disappeared they, I don't know if they were thanked or whatever, but you know, you'd end up. They were, some were given soldier settler blocks that were useless, and some were given jobs pumping lifts and stuff because they'd lost an arm or a leg or sometimes both. And but uh, particularly the returnees from Vietnam were almost. I remember talking to a bloke. I think it was in in Karatha, and he said we were just told to get in a cab, get off the plane, land at night, get in a cab, and go home and uh, continue with your life. Um, and only recently has that really changed a bit, I suppose. Well, well, that's right. And and a few of the veterans, um, particularly, I think, um, Phil Parsons, um, very, very uh, insightful and funny gentleman, and and his his wife, who who also served. Uh, from recollection, they were told on the plane back as as the um, persons walked up and down the aisle and handed out their service medals. 
uh, don't put them on and make sure when you get out at the airport you're not in uniform. Um, that's it, forget it, get on with your lives. And of course, uh, as we now know, it's, it's not... It's not as simple as that. Having been through what they went through, you can't just switch it off um, and you can't just forget. And I think the, the other problem that they faced was they were, they were told that they didn't win that particular war um, and so therefore they weren't given the accolades of, of say, the First and Second World War veterans um, and, and they were put through uh, a, another version of hell, I, I guess you say, when they came home to be subjected to what they were subjected to uh, when I think by any... Any objective account, um, you know, they, they held to the highest standard the traditions of their forebears, their Anzac forebears, mm. and what they did in Vietnam was, was an absolutely fantastic job under um, very trying and completely unfavourable circumstances. Yeah, and PTSD seems to, you know, de rigueur now. We all know about that, and the Afghan soldiers and the people who served over there, are, you know, are, I hope are being looked after, but in Vietnam that wasn't known about, and... Um, uh, I just, you know, you, you you read stories, and I suppose there's stories in your book, good and bad, about uh, people who've returned and what's happened after they've returned from a place like Vietnam. Because a lot of, a lot of, I mean, we seem to have not had an army then. That's why we had the the, the marble. You had to draw, you know, if your number was up, you were you were in the army. And and uh, I suppose it's one thing to be in the army and trained to be a soldier, but to be, you know, working as a, you know, a whatever uh, in in uh, in civilian life and all of a sudden you're in the army and um, a quantum leap for people and, and something that often they would never get over. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, I think the other thing to, to point out is that, that those of us who didn't or have never experienced that, it would be impossible to understand. And one of the things that struck me with interviewing these veterans was um, quite simply they were happy to recall the circumstances and the to which they came home to and the abuse they copped but to to a person they all stopped and said if you think we had it bad these boys returning well sorry these people our men and women of our current defense force deployments in the middle east they are going to have it far worse because both the government and the military simply have either ignored or haven't learned the lessons um you know, Normie Rowe, who was good enough to give up his time, he, he was he was very adamant that this is a huge problem. Um, you know, someone like Greg Carter, um, who probably typifies the circumstances to which you speak, he was conscripted out of rural Victoria, uh, served in Vietnam, ironically found his love of photography, and of course the book is just completely saturated with Greg's photos, some of which are absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's only a small collection of what he's got but but coming home greg now runs a retreat in victoria called uh, cockatoo rise which i think is down at macarthur in victoria and of course he now having already given so much continues to give not just to our vietnam veterans but as you know greg recently told me he said that the guys that are the men and women that are coming down there from our more recent deployments he said they're in a really bad way and they're not getting the assistance they need. And that's something that echoes throughout the book, the concern of our Vietnam veterans for our more recent deployments. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think, you know, I, I'm, I don't think you can thank people who go to serve in places that uh, is completely alien to us, jungles and deserts and the, the, the history of war, in, um, Australians going to war. You can't, um, you know, you can't fathom it. You know, everybody else stays home and, uh, you know, although they work hard, there's something about being on the front line, being blown up by unexploded bombs or being ambushed in the jungle, or, you know, and uh, 
Agent Orange and all those sort of things that uh, happened in Vietnam. It's uh, it's a remarkable, you know, it's remarkable that people survived as well as they have. And I suppose some of them, I suppose it's the bonding of getting together um, the Vietnam Veterans Association and things like that that have helped these uh, blokes because they didn't get much help anywhere else. Well, no, that's exactly right. And, of course, the, the RSL um, at that time doesn't come out very well in the book. The veterans uh, were not very impressed with the, the, the treatment they received when they got home. Um, but it, it's also ironic, um, you know, Dave Cook, who was part of the stolen generation, um, you know, he, he wasn't able to have in our society self-autonomy until he was 23 years of age. But as Dave tells me, the government was more than happy for him to go to war uh, lead white men into battle and die for his country, which he thought was pretty generous of the government to let him do that. Um, he went back to um, the Southeast Asia in later years. Uh, he put together an organisation to help clear landmines. Um, Peter Perry, um, he's also in the book. He's recently put together um, a humanitarian program to go back to Vietnam to help the villagers with, with sanitation. And it just strikes me as an amazing example um, of the human spirit that having been through what they've been through and having lost so much, these guys are still willing to give so much to, to help others and particularly in circumstances where history would view others as, as potentially our, our former enemies. Um, these guys don't see those barriers. They just know that it's, it's the right thing to do and, and they continue to give. And it's, it's just was an absolute honour to be able to sit down and, and be allowed to get an insight into to what happened to these people and for them to share their stories. The book's called Reflections on Vietnam. The author is Ray Clark, who I've been talking to this morning. Uh, people can get that book in, in bookshops, or what's the story, Ray? Um, the book's available on Amazon and Booktopia, and it's also available from uh, Mosh Pit Publishing uh, on their website. Uh, it's called uh, themoshshop.com.au, right. uh, and, and it's yes, it's available through those three entities. Ray Clark, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mac. A pleasure to be on. Thank you for your time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.